Well, continuing with the, uh, the theme of, of children, I, I knew that they would be a challenging act to follow. I thought you might enjoy uh, this, this little uh, story that I read this last week. So it came to pass a long, long time ago, maybe 100 or even 300 years ago, according to the experts in the first grade at Holy Family Regional Catholic School. It is a, uh, it's a small school limited to about 200 students for pre-K through 8th grade. And it has a strong religious education, so it's an ideal place to get the facts about Christmas. Jesus was born in a stable with some cows and a sheep and a dog by him when he was born, said Seth. There was just a cow and a donkey when baby Jesus was born, corrected Tommy. And the cow and the donkey were curious about it, what it was, and so they looked over and they saw the little baby and they stayed there. Well, the students were asked to explain the story as though the person they were addressing had never heard the Christmas story. Never heard of Jesus. They were to pretend that their listener was from some faraway place. And so after some discussion, they decided that this must be someplace in Africa. (laughs) Like Arizona, stated William, as his classmates all nodded their heads, agreeing that this sounded very foreign. Well, the season revolves around the birth of this baby, which was something that people had longed for, they exclaimed. There were people who had been waiting by a window for years and years, and God promised to send a Savior And he sent us Jesus. And then they elaborated. Christmas is special because Jesus was born on that day. And he was really special because he was God's child. And Mary's child, said Emily. And Joseph was the foster father of Jesus, said little Seth. But like many theologians, they debated the nature of Jesus. Baby Jesus? Well, he's going to be God, Anthony said. Not God, corrected Azariah. He is the child of God. God or Son of God, either one, Jesus' coming brings joy, they all agreed. God is coming and all the animals are happy. Jesus is a very special person to some people because he was the one who made the animals and people. He made all kinds of stuff and some people are happy about that. And he saves us from our sins, said Tommy, explaining that sins are when you do something very bad. Like when you say God's name in vain, something like that, said Emily. Jesus saves us, but there's more. The Bible tells us that Jesus loves us. And that's important because he loves us more than anything in the world. He was born in a, in a stable, said little Jairus. In, in Israel, I think, it was a magical stable. And Jesus was born in this magical stable instead of a house because there wasn't any room left for them anywhere else. And shepherds came too. To gather around, Anthony said softly, and, and angels. God sent angels. And angels send messages to people. Yeah, Anthony said, there, there are guardian angels. Well, we humans can't see these angels because they're in heaven and we're not in heaven yet, but they fly down. And after the birth, the baby had more visitors. They said, yeah, some guys with camels, saviors, I think they were, came to see the baby Jesus. So they could visit and see what baby Jesus looked like, William said, and to give him presents. Yeah, bread and wine, said Anthony. And a leaf, a leaf, said Hannah. I only know like one gift, said Tommy. They gave him gold. Yeah, the three wise men brought gifts to Jesus. So that's why Santa Claus brings us gifts and toys, Emily said. And Santa Claus comes every Christmas, comes down your chimney or your air vent if you don't have a chimney. (laughs) So there you have it. That is the inside scoop on the Christmas story from a class of first grade experts. The Christmas story. So familiar. So familiar, I think that it is, it is worth sometimes reading and considering things like that uh, to, uh, to cause us to 
maybe exercise our brains a little bit more and to consider some things about the familiar that perhaps we have never done. And this morning, we're going to turn again to our Advent text. It's found in Isaiah chapter 9, a text that was written five to 700 years before Jesus' birth. And again, probably familiar words. Uh, we'll read them and, and, uh, and you'll go, oh yeah, yeah, I know this, heard this. We, we use these words a lot at Christmas time. But, but my hope is, is that this morning we can uh, perhaps exercise our gray matter a little bit, stretch it a little bit, and uh, wrestle with, with some of the obvious. So let's stand together and read our Advent text from Isaiah chapter 9. Here we go, together. For to us a child is born... To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Yes, it will. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Last Sunday, we considered the first of those four descriptions. The one who was going to be born, the one who was coming, would be called Wonderful Counselor. And we learned, if you remember, that, that Isaiah, he used the word there that we translate wonderful. It means extraordinary. It means uh, astonishing. It's a word that, that is often used throughout the Old Testament to describe the acts of God, the activity of God, that is uh, very difficult to understand by people. And as the counselor, the wonderful counselor, the extraordinary, astonishing counselor, we learned that, that he always has a plan. He always has a good plan. And even though we may look around at the circumstances of our lives and not understand that this plan that is unfolding in and around us is good because he is the good counselor. Some of you receive the email that comes out each week. And if you, you read it this week, you know I was thinking again about those words that the angel spoke to Mary. Greetings, you who are highly favored. And Luke tells us that this greeting was, was troubling to Mary, as well it should have been. Because Mary, being a Jewish girl, assuming that she grew up in a devout Jewish home, she understood that to be favored by the Lord often meant that your life was about to be turned upside down. God's plan was about to embrace her life in a way that she had never considered. And of course, the the next words that the angel spoke to her confirmed that, that she was right. The plan that God had to bring his son into the world was not at all convenient, nor was it easy nor, to be quite honest, was it something that Mary might actually want in her life. Now imagine the angel lining up a half a dozen young girls, and he's surveying them. Okay, which one of you 13-year-old girls would like to be pregnant 
Now, you don't have to have sex in order to be pregnant, but, but you're going to be pregnant anyway. And everybody is going to think that you had sex as a 13-year-old girl. And the man that you're engaged to, well, he's going to want to dump you because you're pregnant. And your family's going to be embarrassed and they're shamed. And when it's time to have the baby, you're going to be a long way from home. And your mother's not going to be there. And come to think of it, you're going to end up having this baby in kind of a cave-like structure where they keep animals and it'll be full of animal poop and animal smells and all kinds of things. Any volunteers for the job? It's not the way the counselor works. The plans of God and, and thus the, the plans of God's son, the wonderful counselor, very often they do not make sense to us. His perspective on the way things need to happen is so much clearer than our perspective on things in life. He always has a good plan. And his plan is, is right. And so he does not consult us. He does not ask for our opinions about his plan. The last Sunday, you remember, we, we talked about the status that the people who lived in Jerusalem were facing. The great king Uzziah had died. And it was Isaiah's vision of God who was high and exalted and lifted up. And the, robe, the, the train of his robe was, was filling the temple. Good times under King Uzziah. And then he died. And then several more years went by and, and life under his grandson, not so good. You remember I asked you to, to imagine yourself as citizens of that city. And you hear the prophet tell you about someone who is to come. He will be a wonderful counselor. And, and the rejoicing that you would experience in your heart, finally somebody is coming with a good plan. Finally, somebody is going to show up who, who knows what's going on and what is best for his people. Well, I want you to imagine that you're still standing there in Jerusalem this morning and uh, your neighbor is standing with you. And you hear the old prophet standing across the, the corner there from you and he's still shouting out about this one who is to come. And this morning, he's talking about the one who is to come being mighty God. Mighty God. The word that he uses there literally means strong one, means valiant warrior. So, what I want you to do is ask your neighbor, what's he talking about? Mighty God, strong one, valiant warrior. What do you hear? Ask your neighbor, what do you hear? What do you hear in that announcement? What's he saying? Okay, we ready? What are you hearing? The prophet's talking about mighty God. What do you hear? John, what do you hear? These descriptions in Isaiah are unique to the prophet. But, uh, but they, certainly, they certainly knew of God. They certainly knew of a lot of the descriptions that we find in the Old Testament. Braveheart. <laughs> okay. What else? What do you hear? Sound a little combative. Yeah? Mighty warrior? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, good, good. What else? Anything else? Hope? Yeah? No. Precisely. 
you know, you're Jews. I mean, if, if you're citizens of Jerusalem, you're Jews. You have a history with Yahweh. And you, more than any people on earth, have a history of God doing incredible things. Big stuff. The history includes the Exodus. There's a wow. Crossing of the Red Sea. Pillar of fire and smoke. Manna in the wilderness. Shoes don't wear out. The Jericho walls come tumbling down after a seven-day stroll and a shout. And the list goes on and on and on of incredible stuff that God has done in the history of your people. But here's the reality. You are living in Jerusalem at a time when it has been a long, long period of time since God has done any of those mighty kinds of things. Hundreds of years, in fact. And so, are you ready to see this mighty God act on behalf of you and your people? Absolutely you are. Get him, God! The mighty warrior. The strong one. Valiant. Guess what? It's going to be another five to seven hundred years. You're going to be dead, and you're not going to see it happen. Five hundred years, at least, until the one who is to come, the one who is mighty God, actually comes, according to the prophet's word. So then you need to fast forward 500 plus years to the middle of the night in a little backwater town that's overflowing with people because of a Roman census, crowded beyond description, people who are there because they have to be and don't want to be, go a little bit further into that town and you come into this cave-like place where the owner of the house keeps his animals and there are the animals and the smells and the noises. And there's a newborn baby laying in a feeding trough. Now, according to Isaiah's prophecy, who is this newborn baby that's laying in the feeding trough? Mighty God? And you're thinking, really? Come on. Dare we say that this makes very little sense? Yeah, we dare. It doesn't make any sense at all. Some years ago, <clears throat> you know the name Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. He's an atheist, and he sat down with the editors of Time Magazine and a Christian by the name of Francis Collins. And they had a debate just there with the editors about the idea of God and science. Near the end of the debate, Richard Dawkins said this. My mind is not closed, as you have occasionally suggested, Francis. My mind is open. 
to the most wonderful range of future possibilities, which I cannot even dream about, nor can you, nor can anybody else. What I am skeptical about, he said, is the idea that whatever wonderful revelation does come in the science of the future, it will turn out to be one of the particular historical religions that people happen to have dreamed up. I doubt it. You know, when we started out in this debate, we were talking about the origins of the universe, and I provided what I thought were cogent arguments against a supernatural, intelligent designer. But it does not seem to me to be a worthy idea. Refutable, but nevertheless grand and big enough to be worthy of respect. And then he said this. He said, I don't see the Olympian gods or Jesus coming down to earth and dying on the cross as worthy of that kind of grandeur. He's right. I don't blame him for that statement. It's unreasonable. The very notion of God carries with it a big and powerful sense. That's the mighty God that the Israelites were thinking about when the prophet announced, one who is coming will be called mighty God. That God would come in the form of a baby and then would die a criminal's death on a cross? That does not fit the bill for mighty. What kind of a God dies on a cross? (laughs) I like the images of God in the Old Testament. Don't you? God of shock and awe and power. The electrifying stuff. Don't you know? We understand that kind of a power. It gets things done. We like that. We think of power, we think of force. We think of a force that has the ability to bring about change. That's the kind of power that a person wants and maybe even expects in their God, right? It it gets God-like things accomplished. But I want you to consider this this morning. Maybe a new spin on an old tale. I want you to consider that in the birth and the life and the death of Jesus, there is on display, for those of us who are willing to look and to listen, there is a display for us to see a power that is far greater than anything we could ever imagine. Let me ask you several questions that I think lead us to understand this display of power. Let me ask you, what kind of power does it take For the creator of the universe, which is what we learn from Colossians chapter 1, what kind of power does it take for that creator to take on flesh and blood? What kind of power does it take for the Father to entrust the care of this God-man into the hands of 
of a teenage girl. What kind of power does it take to create a plan of entry into the world that does not recognize and announce the greatness of the Creator? A stable? A feeding trough? Animal poop? What kind of power does it take to grow and live a perfect life among imperfect people? What kind of power does it take to resist doing the kinds of things that would make people recognize Him? Setting them straight in their thinking about Him and and causing them to fall on their faces and worship Him as, as He deserved. What kind of power does it take to live a life in the midst of brokenness and sin that is on offense to everything that you stand for? What kind of power does it take to surrender oneself into the hands of sinful, weak people? Weak people who think that they are powerful. And allow yourself to be treated and executed as a criminal. What kind of power does that take? Last week, you might remember we were reminded that that Peter got into trouble. Got into trouble with Jesus when Jesus was talking about his suffering and his death. Peter rebuked him. He said, no way, Lord. It's never going to happen to you. And Jesus said, Peter, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then those harsh words, get behind me, Satan. Not thinking about the things of God here. Well, of course he wasn't thinking about the things of God. Because from the perspective of of human power, the things of God just often do not make sense. Not the birth of a helpless baby, not the living of a humble, nondescript life, certainly not the dying on a cross like a common criminal. I want to suggest to you this morning that that the power of the mighty God demonstrated in the birth, life, and death of Jesus is power to humble oneself when you don't have to. (laughs) Think about it, my friends. Again and again and again, throughout the life of Jesus, he is disrespected, he is misunderstood, He is credited with wrongdoing. He is accused of being possessed by a demon. What does he do? He lives his life. And he humbles himself to the plan made long ago. Made eons before he ever stepped foot into his world in the flesh. A plan that flowed out of the nature and the character of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and that's what, I want us to, that's what I want us to see. 
this Advent Sunday morning. Mighty God? Absolutely. Without a doubt. In the birth, in the life, in the death of Jesus, we are given an amazing insight into the character and and the heart of God. And, And when I say that, I don't mean just in the life of Jesus himself. We talk about that a lot here at Applewood. It's that Hebrews 1 truth where the writer of Hebrews says that, that in Jesus we see the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of God's being. But it's more than that. It's more than just seeing it in the life of Jesus. It's the bigger picture, seeing it in the plan of salvation, the life of which Jesus is a part. In the humble, demeaning birth, in the very humble, modest life, and in the horrible, brutal death, in those things, in those events, we see something of the character of God that is mightier than any of us knows. A plan that flows out of a heart of love and forgiveness like we have never experienced. Talk about a warrior. What would this this mighty God, what would this warrior God do? Well, well, John tells us in one of his letters near the end of the New Testament that that Jesus appeared, Jesus was born, Jesus came to earth so that he might destroy the works of the devil. But he didn't do it like any of us would expect. Guns weren't blazing. Arrows weren't flying. Bombs weren't exploding. It was simple birth, Mediocre life, criminal death, victory won. Defeated the work of the enemy. Mighty God, without question. Makes sense? Absolutely not. Mighty God. You know, we live in a culture, don't we, that's, that's interested in the best and the most powerful. I think of lists that the the media provides us with. Forbes magazine presents their annual list for the top 100 celebrities. For the 400 richest Americans. I haven't seen any of you on that list, by the way. Daniel's close. There's lists about the world's most powerful women. And then there are other sites that, that list the top 10 most powerful people in the world, 50 most powerful people in D.C. There is an unusual list that comes out. It's uh, by an online publication called 24-7 Wall Street, and it's called The 100 Least Powerful People in the World. And, and among those, I mean, there are names that you would know, corporate executives, sports figures, politicians, celebrities, the whole shebang. They, care, they, they, they all have one common characteristic. They used to be powerful, and now they're not. Some are victims of circumstances, financial, that kind of stuff. Others have made poor business decisions. Others have lost their power, their influence due to moral failure. There's a number of reasons. You know what else they all have in common? None of them chose to be powerless. None of them desired to be on that list. 
Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Out of the character of God flows a humility that is simply unbelievable. That our God chooses to humble himself for the sake of lost and broken people. He is a mighty God. I just want to add the word different. He is a mighty different God, if you ask me. He is, in fact, a God who is worth worshiping. He is a God who spoke things into existence. He's a God who holds all of life, everything living in his hands. And yet, he is a God who willingly humbles himself and offers himself to those whom he has created. He makes himself available. I hope you will think often in this Advent season of this mighty God, mighty enough to do what simply doesn't make sense. That is important to our celebration. Praise team, why don't you come on up? Phil and Allie, I don't know if anybody else is joining you this time around. I want to close with just a few words. <clears throat> Some of you perhaps know the name Athanasius. He was a bishop in the early church in Alexandria about the 3rd century. He was often referred to as the champion of orthodoxy. Listen to what he wrote about the incarnation, the birth and the life of Jesus that we are celebrating in this season. What was God to do in face of the dehumanizing of humankind, this universal hiding of the knowledge of himself by the wiles of evil spirits? What else could he possibly do but renew his image in humankind so that through it people might once more Come to know him. And how could this be done? Save by the coming of the very image himself, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Human beings could not have done it, for they are only made after the image. Nor could angels have done it, for they are not the images of God. The word of God came in his own person because it was he alone, the image of the Father, who could recreate human beings made after the image Now, some may ask, says Athanasius, why did he not manifest himself by means of other and nobler parts of creation, such as sun or moon or stars or fire or air, instead of just coming as a mere man? The answer is this. The Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to save and to teach suffering people. 
for one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have been just to appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and save and teach, the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him. Mighty God. Mightier than we know in the strangest of 